Welcome to Mansi, a podcast about magic, history, and the fucked up ways those clash together. I'm Elle Alder, a professional psychic and solitary eclectic witch. With me is my co-host, RJ. I'm RJ Walker, a spoken word poet guy and writer. And also, we have an incredibly special guest, Jennifer Martin, with us today. Hi, everyone. I'm Jennifer Martin. I'm a professional psychic. <laughs> I'm outnumbered today. <laughs> I brought in Jennifer. Um, Jennifer and I have worked together for a really long time. We've been, I don't know, it's probably been like eight-ish, maybe seven. I think that sounds right. Yeah, eight-ish years um, since we've been working together. And actually, um, Jennifer and I went and did our like Akashic Records training together. So that like... Um, I don't know, the multi-meditation weekend. <laughs> it was a lot of meditation. I know. Jennifer and I were sitting next to each other like, okay, we get it. We've meditated. That sounds like uh, a multi-meditation weekend is like what Joseph Smith tried to sell everybody on when he was trying to tell them that the golden plates were real. Like they're, <laughs> they're in the box. No, you, I don't see anything. You, have to you need to meditate more. That is that And is you'll true. see them. <laughs> Just look harder. Um, so what is your experience with the Akashic Records? I um, I first learned about the Akashic Records in probably about 2009. Um, I read a book called okay. The Akashic Records mm -hmm. by Linda Howe. And, mm -hmm. um, and it teaches you kind of how to do that in the book. But I also had another mentor who showed me a little bit more about kind of how to get into it. Since then, I feel like I've adapted my practice a bit so mm -hmm. it's not totally hers it's not totally what we learned in multi-meditation mm -hmm. weekend and it's <laughs> it's kind of like a I don't know it's a, it's a sh sometimes it's a shorthand mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that's really interesting to me about the records is that I I just I don't usually see things mm -hmm. I, I'm a feeler so if I'm reading for someone I usually feel things but when I'm reading in the records I can see things almost mm -hmm. like a little movie montage. Like a picture, right? Yes. I get like I get one image and then it's like once I attach to that image, then it'll kind of move into a movie. Like I'll be like, okay, this is like the I don't know, the yes. basis the of the starter. It. Mm -hmm. Yes. I feel like it's like flipping pages of a book. Yeah. But then like you you know how sometimes you do that and you randomly pick one page? Mm -hmm. It's like that only it stops for me. And yep. then like I can go like a little deeper into it. But it's kind of fun. I, I found that the records are not totally for me, they're not totally what any of my teachers told me. Mm -hmm. They're they're a very rich source of information for not just like past life stuff, but also just purpose in general. Mm -hmm. Um and what people are trying to get out of their lives, what they're trying to learn, what they're trying to accomplish, skills they're trying to get better at, that kind of thing or master. So there's just a lot of really great info in there that helps me see that people are not just these little humans right, right in front of me. Yeah. There's definitely, like, all of those layers. And um, I've been – so um, this episode – Yeah. What are we doing today? 
We're going to talk about the Akashic Records. I, so there's a few things that happen. So, like, one, before you, dear listener, have, like, selected and listened to this episode, you've seen it says, the Akashic Records, part two, colon, the Blavatsky effect. And so I'm going to go ahead and assume that you already know what we're going to talk about today, which is the Akashic <laughs> Records and Blavatsky. Um, the reason that I have Jennifer today is because, um, while we love RJ and he's really wonderful, uh-huh. what do you think of the Akashic <laughs> Records? Like, what's your experience with them? Um, you know, people can believe in whatever they want as long as they don't hurt anybody. Right. So that's why he's not going to be offering commentary about the more intricate philosophical parts of the Akashic Records because he's not really equipped to do so. And so I didn't feel like talking at RJ and or becoming frustrated because he was like, I don't know what this is and I don't really care. So I brought someone who does and who can offer her own kind of (laughs) perspective, um, thoughts, different things like that. Um, Because... The first episode that we did on the Akashic Records, I think, was a good intro, but there were a lot of questions because that's kind of the main thing. Whenever I, like, ask people, like, what do you know about the Akashic Records? What do you want to know about the Akashic Records? People just look at me totally blank and be like, I don't even know where to start. Like, what do I even ask? So I feel like it was really good to have that so we could kind of have an intro. And today we're going to be answering some of those questions and some of the deeper philosophical things and then um, – This is kind of a section of the book that I am writing because I'm really looking at the history of where we got the Akashic Records from, how they came to us, and like what the purpose of that really was. Because I think that that's a really big question for a lot of people. Like, why do we have incarnations? Why do we have past lives? Why do we have all of these things? What's the purpose of that? So um, we're going to do a lot (laughs) of kind of theory, philosophy, and then we're going to talk about Blavatsky. So that's kind of... It's kind of the thing today. Are we ready? I'm ready. Okay. Okay, so several people, including our listeners Marianne and Kira, asked for a very bare bones description of the Akashic Records. So this is kind of what I came up with, which, like Jennifer, um, the Akashic Records, well, so in a different way than Jennifer has experience with the Akashic Records, because what would you say is your main form of readings? When people come to get a reading from you, what is the main thing you do for them? Do you mean like my tool or the what I actually give them or think I'm to give them? I would say both. So I specialize in tarot and past life and pet psychic readings. So if I have a tool, it's the tarot cards. And I probably do those more than anything. Okay. But for the Akashic Records, it's all just kind of shown to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not really a tool thing. Okay. But I think the thing that I try to give people is um, both clarity Mm -hmm. And context. So they understand there's a lot more to what they're going through than just our human linear time loveliness that we think there is. Or even just this life and what we would achieve in this life. That there's more to them than even that. So Mm -hmm. I think there's something about knowing you're more than 
what you think you are right this second mm -hmm. that is shown in the records that I really appreciate. Yeah, okay, for sure. And I think that that's something for me, um, I would say the primary thing that people come to me for readings for now are the Akashic Records. Mm. I don't know that that, that has definitely not always been the truth. <laughs> definitely um, once my store closed and then I kind of transitioned to Etsy, I think that there's a lot of people worldwide that are very interested in them, but there aren't very many practitioners working with them. And certainly not, I would say, as in-depth as I have gone. And so this is kind of, my approach to the Akashic Records is not based on necessarily what I've been taught, but what I have found, what I have uncovered, what I have learned throughout my experience. And so um, I did have that conversation with Jeff Levin, who I was talking about in the last episode that I was like, I get to talk to this guy who like works at Baylor. And um, <laughs> he straight up was like, well, you're the expert. Can I ask you a few questions? And I was like, I'm an expert. This MD <laughs> said that I'm an expert. Okay. So this is kind of... Um, my take, my stuff, the way that I'm going to talk about this in my book. So here we go. The Akashic Records are the energetic tapestries that contain the threads of every thought, feeling, and intention and action that has ever happened, as well as potential thoughts, feelings, intentions, and actions that could potentially happen in the future. It's like the life stream in Final Fantasy VII. Yeah, sure. There's so many things. Like, that's the thing, right? If we look at all of like the great variety of media that exists about it, people consistently talk about something that contains all of the information that has ever existed, right? Yeah. Uh, I, my favorite is probably the Library of Babel by Borges. We used it in the Cybermancy episode to try mm -hmm. to predict the future. Yeah. How do you feel about the tapestry? I love that idea. It was... When I very first learned about it, it was explained to me that it was more like a library. I'm going to talk about that, yeah. But I think that I, – I think what I have come to understand, like the idea and the imagery of tapestry is so much more rich mm -hmm. than the idea of the library. Yeah, so. and I think particularly for me, the reason that I kind of arrived at that um, description of a tapestry is because when we're doing readings, everything is on a sort of energetic thread. And Jennifer and I have done group readings together for a long time, like several years, where the two of us will sit in a room with like a bunch of people, sometimes like 30 or more people, and do readings for all of them. And the two of us, like if one person goes out and finds that energetic cord to a question, to a person, to someone who's crossed over, then the other one of us can find that cord very easily. And so when we talk about the cord or the thread, I was kind of like, how do we talk about the intersection? Because books have a linear way of interacting. And tapestries are the individual threads. Like, that's what makes them. So that was kind of my thought there. So to go further into this, Akasha is a Sanskrit word that refers to the ether, aether, which is all things material and non-material, specifically in Indian philosophy. So it's very Eastern philosophies, um, not based in Christianity, very based, like a wide variety of Eastern religions pull on things from the Akasha or past lives, etc. to explain things. So humans have found books and other written records to be the easiest way to disseminate information. This is my theory. I believe the idea of records and our books comes from the way we gain information and spread it. So I think that that's like, because what if you hand someone a tapestry, you could say, what do you learn from this tapestry? And someone could be like, there's some pretty colors. <laughs> <laughs> but if you hand someone a book, they're like, oh, I can understand this. So I think that the pull for us to describe them as the records, as books, as a library, really comes from how we contextualize information and how we talk about it and that we like latch on to that as kind of a supporting method to support it. 
if that makes sense. I agree. I also think that just um, tapestries in general tend to not necessarily be very steeped in our, like, puritanical history exactly. in the U.S. <laughs> so I don't know that that would work as well for people because it's it's not as strong of a metaphor or, like, something that's been, like, really in our – in, like, our the ethos of yeah. being American or whatever. Especially, like, the, I, the reason that I think what I learned originally for the records was very Christianized. Yes. And, I, and it's interesting to me to find – or in working through them and with them – that it, it really isn't about anything like that. It isn't right. about a religion or a religious take on it. I think it might have just been a good entrance for Christian people into that particular thing. But yeah, I agree. I think books are also one of those things that we associate with, I don't know, like um, w- like scripture too, yes. right? So we like sacred if knowledge. You are, yeah, if you are absolutely. Um, if you're religious or from a religious tradition or even have heard of one, like books are at the center of most of those. So I think there's a lot of different uh, ways that that intersects. Yeah. And uh, we've looked at people that are, you know, subscribed to these theosophical ideas that have really just turned them and hyper fixated on Christianity with them. And I'm going to talk about that. Like Marie Ogden. Like uh, I got a bunch of her like original writings for the play I did. And a vast majority of it was like, we worship Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the most powerful of all of the masters. He's the master of masters. We're Christian. See, like us, because we're Christian. And I think that well, comes from, you know, the, the people start at the place they understand. And when you're in America, Christianity is the place most people understand. Well, there's also, I mean, Blavatsky is not American. She's Russian. She's actually from a part of Ukraine now. Right. But everything in here, she has letters from her followers and people referring to her guides as Christ, saying when Christ comes back or as you call him and then like the name of the guide. Mm. And so even then, when we start looking at these things, Christianity has been such like an overwhelming um, perspective, belief, thought process, like so fundamentally ingrained into who, who we are as humans, even if you aren't Christian. Even if you aren't Christian, probably especially if you aren't Christian, you've been affected and impacted by Christianity. Absolutely. Because um, Christianity and colonization go hand, hand in hand. hand. So, and yeah. so it is like erasure of cultures. And like that's the most effective way to say that the reason I'm taking your culture away from you is because I want to save you. Mm-hmm. And that is what people have used for a long time. So part of the process for me in the Akashic Records, the work that I'm doing with this, is really decentralizing Christianity in here. Because I think it's bullshit. I'm tired of it. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I don't want to. <laughs> base my spirituality around that because I think we're done with it. I think as a society, we can make a choice that people do not have to believe in Christ in order to be like a whole complete good person. So that is something I talk about a lot in the Akashic Records and the approach. And we're going to talk about where a lot of the fundamental stuff from Christianity comes from in the Akashic Records. Okay, so although I do still use that terminology, library books, records, um, a lot of the time I use that so that I can communicate with people in a way that they understand. If I'm like, you're a tapestry, let me pull your tapestry down. That might actually be a more effective way for me to read, Mm. but I'm not sure that that would be an effective way for people to understand the reading. I don't know, because like 
a lot of like sort of mythologies and like storytelling in like fiction uh, involves like fate being something that is woven. Into yeah, it's a the thread of fate. Right. right. I think I think people can still kind of like latch onto that because it's an idea that they've encountered in fiction and mythology. I mean, you would think that they could, but my experience and the work that I have done is that they often can't and won't and don't because there's all of these things that people believe to be inherently true and they're unwilling to do the work of like taking those things apart and the philosophy portion of it. And we don't really have that much philosophy about this, which is why I'm writing a book to talk about that so that hopefully we can describe things as tapestries and people understand what that means. So we can think of an individual person as a singular human, really, as their own tapestry. And that person has the tapestry that individual threads are events, past lives, emotions, actions, all of those things. Each individual one creates an energetic thread that goes into the weaving of your tapestry that makes you who you are. So now I get a bunch of questions about past lives that have to do with the Akashic Records. Past lives are a primary thing that the Akashic Records have been used to access uh, pretty much until this point. That's pretty much been the only thing that we've really used them for. So talk to me about your past life stuff, how you do the readings, what that looks like using the Akashic Records for more, or how you maybe transition from just past lives into more deeper stuff with it. Well, I think just going with your tapestry um, metaphor, there's so much that just kind of is connected Mm -hmm. that even if I just wanted to talk about something, I get kind of pulled into a different direction. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting because for me, it's it's got that movie montage feel where like I can see a bunch of things kind of happening in succession or like – um, without like the cool soundtrack, um, I just yeah, see I the pictures. I, was, like, I know. Does like fucking He's, Peter Gabriel show up? <laughs> There's no like Eye of the Tiger it going. Be, like, it's not anything like that. Music. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. It should be. It should be. Anyway, I without the benefit of that. Um, I, so what happens for me, or what opens the door, is just knowing someone's first name. Mm-hmm. And when you and I read, that's kind of the way when we read together. I just need to know someone's first name. Yeah. Like, you do names and I do relation because a lot of those readings we would do, like, mediumship. Yes. And so um, Jennifer would be like, what's that person's name? And uh, for the record, if you've changed your name for any variety of reasons, nobody really needs to have your, like, birth name. That doesn't no. matter. It is the vibration of who you are in this moment because who you are in this moment is also woven into that tapestry. So I would say if you have a reader who insists that they have to have your birth name, you could say, thank you so much. I'm good with this session. Have a wonderful day and just leave because they don't need that. And it can be a method of, like, kind of taking away individuality or saying, like, who you are now doesn't really matter compared to who you were when you were born, which I object to for a variety of reasons. And just as a point of – I mean, resonance, Mm -hmm. it feels like – if you don't resonate with your birth name or if no right. one calls you like your full and first hasn't name, for a long time. You know, it doesn't matter because the the energy that you resonate with is going to be the energy that, that the records can come through. So mm-hmm. so it, it doesn't it's it doesn't have to be quite that exact. Right. We find that thread in uh, folklore and stories and uh there's also like l- literal magical beliefs uh, in names and naming things being a way to exert uh, power right. or control over something. The whole book, The Name of the Wind, is like that's the whole magic system is that if you know something's true name, you can command it, right? 
Well, and that is, like, we see that in, like, different sects of, like, demonology and different yeah. stuff like that. Uh, and a lot of that comes from, like, the Irish magic and the Irish practices. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, past lives are not the entirety of the Akashic records. But going to a past life to find an answer to a pattern of behavior, belief, gift, or struggle is essentially like pulling on a thread in your tapestry and seeing which threads it intersects with. So where those different things combine, where they cross over, all of those things. Um, our friend of the show, Enin. Ah. <laughs> Enin, who's actually in the office recording with us today. I mean, he's not on the mic, but he's here. He ran, He's knitting. He, he's fucking crocheting. It's <laughs> fucking crochet. <laughs> Enin uh, did the intern run and got us some beverages. So we are all set. So. And it wanted to know very specifically um, if past lives and generational trauma are connected. And I think they are, but in weird ways. What do you think about that, Jen? I agree. I think sometimes um, I, I have seen in the records past life past life trauma that's very separate from like maybe your genealogy now. Mm -hmm. But I have seen people because they have had that experience dive right into a particular line um, mm -hmm. and so that they can either change the trajectory of that family tree, mm -hmm. stop a pattern or um, or help bring like bring light to it, that kind of thing, too. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And I also do think that sometimes what we resonate with is so important. And if we have a like a, a weird resonance with powerlessness. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I've seen that show up in the records too. And then for some reason that can get a little intertwined with trauma. Well, and also yeah. just, yeah. And also just the amount of lives someone's had, the kind of lives they've yeah. had, like all of that can kind of be something that they've either learned from and now they're ready to go a different direction or something that they're still working out because just because we have learned a lesson once doesn't mean that we've really that we're learned done it. With it. Yeah, yeah that there are people ready. that just go through lives and lives and lives learning the same darn thing, and their guides are just shaking their heads at them right. and still <laughs> trying to be supportive. But um, I, yeah, I have seen a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, research regarding intergenerational trauma is still fairly cutting edge right now, mm -hmm. especially sociological research. I'm probably going to bring this up in the Entomancy episode, but like they've found that butterf butterflies, like after the caterpillar metamorphosizes, even though its entire body turns into liquid and reforms into a new creature, uh, it retains all of its traumatic memories. Um, same with uh, animal studies where animals will teach each other their past trauma and that'll get passed down through generations. Well, also, so yes. Um, and I was going to say, like, for people who haven't heard of intergenerational trauma or generational trauma, we're talking about trauma that our ancestors, that are like DNA, the people who have given us our genes that make us a human in this way, in this lifetime, that those genes somehow get encoded with trauma um, and that that trauma can affect whether and like how afraid we are of things, certain other things like that. So I do have some research that I found on this. Um, and I want to preface this first little piece of research by saying that when we are doing scientific research, if we are looking at numbers that systemic, systemically um, – Systematically? Well, disregard entire races because of inability uh, inability to access things that we're basing off of research. Uh, yeah, that bias. it's not going to be – well, 
So this, the first piece of um, evidence that I have about this is in 1988, a study published in the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry found that grandchildren of Holocaust survivors are overrepresented by about 300% in psychiatric care referrals, which is a pretty interesting, like, whole. But that is white people receiving care in Canada. So that is not all of the people who actually need care. That is not all of the people who were raised in families. Those are not the people who were stolen from their land and then enslaved by white people. Those are like a section of white people who have like faced obviously significant and incredible um, trauma and what's the word I'm looking for? Persecution. Um, But I want to note like probably if we looked at this and like POC had equal accessibility to psychiatric care, it would be like a lot more for POC. So that's, I just wanted to like kind of point that out in this. Right. Garbage in, garbage out, uh, like we say. So if you live in a biased system and you're using the data from the biased system in which you live, you have to account for that bias in your research. Yes. So everyone is susceptible to generational trauma, but there are specific populations that are vulnerable due to their histories. Being systemically exploited, enduring repeated and continual abuse, racism, and poverty are all traumatic enough to cause genetic changes. So actual actual physical genetic changes to your DNA. If we think about how DNA works, survival of the fittest, and the ways that we develop those things is by developing fear responses. So people will inherently encode themselves with like a fear response of that trauma, and then people can continue to carry it. And that's where we see generational trauma kind of seeping into things now. And there's also the social aspect, right? Like if we look at like the purpose of our ability to understand, deconstruct and construct narratives, that has the purpose of us passing down information, traumatic and uh, uh, healing and positive uh, together uh, to other people. You can spread ideas and spread trauma that way. I mean, that's what ghost stories are, right? And uh, folktales can be a safe way to explore things that are dangerous and traumatic that maybe others have went through. Yeah. So um, I'm going to finish this quote from Dr. De Silva, who is the one that like kind of compiled this evidence. So African-Americans in the United States and around the world are particularly vulnerable and the families affected by catastrophes such as the 2004 tsunami in Asia will have traumatic reactivity for generations to come. People in countries that have endured um, years of war or decades of war may also have generational trauma. A paper entitled Stress Across Generations, DNA Methylation as Potential Mechanism Underlying Intergenerational Effects of Stress, both both post-traumatic stress disorder and preclinical predator stress rodent models. Ooh. It had, like, 10 authors on this bitch. Like, it was a lot. From 2019, as part of a series of studies being conducted on generational trauma. In this review article, we discuss findings from human and laboratory predator stress studies that suggest changes to DNA methylation germane to GRs, generational generationals may underlie the generational effects of trauma transmission. Emerging data suggests that harmful effects of traumatic stress to the HPA axis and PTSD can also propagate in future generations, making offsprings more prone to psychopathologies. So, like, it actually does change your DNA. It actually changes your DNA. They have tracked it. They have found it. They can see where that happens. This is a study from 2019. So Yeah, like I said, this is like the cutting edge. Yeah. Um, our DNA becomes physically altered after trauma has occurred. I would say that our gene- our energetic DNA, so moving into more of the etheric, moving back into Akashic Records, also becomes altered in that process. 
People often have what is called a soul family. This is a group of people a soul likes to incarnate with. No, RJ. We don't all have them, and you are not doomed to incarnate with your family forever. Thank Christ. I know. Thank little baby Jesus in his little uh, baby no. manger. Actually, no, we're taking baby. that out. We're not doing the Christian. <laughs> like, removing that today. L- little teeny baby. Nope. nope. That, not real. <laughs> um, okay. So <laughs> typically it's a period of time that these souls incarnate together. So like it is not consistently your entire life. You own like you have had your mom and all 50 million lives and that's it. I would say that it typically is like a period of time, like maybe five generations that people continue continually reincarnate into or like a series set of lifetimes. Maybe they have all the same lifetime in the same country and it's a family unit that's incarnating in different ways. So like grandma could be grandbaby, like aunts, that kind of stuff. Um, Yeah. Typically, it's a period these people come together and take different roles to learn different things. Then you have not only the physical and scientific generational trauma, but also the trauma from the soul's experiences. So they are connected and can be the same thing, but they're also different things. Okay. I I have to ask the real questions here. Uh-huh. Um, so if there's like a soul family, right? Is it like soul incest? No. No. You can say no, Jennifer. You can. No. <laughs> I'm no. shaking my head. No. <laughs> no. Just check in. No. no. Yeah, just check you're, in. You're being like, you're no. like, the incest thing for you this week has been like, there's been like several like, oh, that's incest. <laughs> just on the brain. Are you concerned? Oh, on the, I live in Utah. It's all around us. Not for me. I no, I don't have those people. Actually, that's not always true. Anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, no, it's not incest. People get weird about that. Where I'm like, yeah, your partner had like was your boyfriend and like a or a brother in a past life, and I'm like, no, it's not. It's fine. See, it's- aren't you glad I asked about it? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> there's going to be at least one person and who's worried about head, it. No. <laughs> so, um. What do you? How do you feel about that? What do you think about that and generational trauma and soul families and past lives? And yeah, that does sort of like m- make it multi-layered and not just in a genetic mm-hmm. way or not just in a spiritual way. And I, I, I think like one of the things about soul families that I really like is that usually you incarnate with people because you trust them mm-hmm. to teach you, you like something. Them. Yeah, whether you know they could. They don't always have to be on your side, but you trust them to, like, be part of that support system or part Mm -hmm. of the lesson you're trying to learn. I think, yeah, I I also think that, like, there can be overlapping where, like, you might jump into that particular ancestral line after having had a past life in it as well. That's what I think is, like— yeah, there's a lot of layers. Yeah, you could be layering—you could be the person—you could be the same soul that is your great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather. And so the things that you've experienced as the great-great-grandfather, you not only remember on a genetic level because it's permanently altered your DNA through that line, but you also have those memories from living that lifetime and those experiences of the real trauma. Yes. Is this why I've been an old man since I turned 20? This is why I've been fucking old since I was 15. Yes. (laughs) Like... (laughs) I'm going to go with yes. Yes. Absolutely. So... Enon was also wondering if the Akashic Records are a place to turn to for healing these kinds of things. I say an exuberant yes. Absolutely. I think the Akashic Records, like, that's kind of... Where I have arrived in, like, the question of, like, why do we have the Akashic Records? Because I think that that's such a – I don't know. I think that that question, like, why do you think we have Akashic Records, Jennifer? Why can we access them now? Why do people want to access them now? 
Well, aside from the clarity and the context of them, mm-hmm. I think they are mutable just like we are. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a lot of different parts of them that are influenceable or that can influence you. And so it's very symbiotic, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. So, yeah, I do think that you can use the Akashic Records for healing just because... What else would you do with them? That's like, like, why else would we have them? Use them for military purposes. The funny thing in that conversation, when I had that conversation with Jeff Levin, straight up he was like, well, uh, you know, I have. So he has seen and um, has been around and has witnessed the studies that they have done on like militaristic, like psychic <gasps> stuff. And so he's seen those studies. He knows the people that participated in them. Like he was I don't think he was part of them, but like friends with the people who were conducting mm. those studies. And so to him. He was like, because I was like, (laughs) basically, I was like, hey, Jeff, why the fuck are you thinking that we're going to use the Akashic Records for war? Because that's not like that's not going to work. And he was like, no, 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 I'm not. I was just trying to be like, well, this would be a really fascinating way to give this some credence to say, well, we could actually use it in this way. It is a real thing that we can be using. To be fair, just about every positive technological advancement uh, in the 21st century, particularly in America, has come from DARPA which is the military research, yeah. like, fund and lab. Right. Well, I mean, the Akashic Records are not from the government. I think it is really interesting because the Akashic Records and our access to, to them are just not as ancient. I mean, they've existed, but our ability to use them, to read them, to be in touch with them is within, like, maybe the last hundred years, really and truly. It is very, very new. So why, when we have tarot and mediumship and runes and, you know, oracles and all of that, why do we have that? But in history, we only just barely have kind of the tip of the iceberg of this thing that is so intriguing. And I think that the answer to that question is because we're it's ready for us to heal, because we do need the context, because we need to see past generations, how those things have affected us, how the things that we've left behind are still with us now, and that we need to have access to that so that we can continue to heal. I also think the interconnectedness and kind of the way that like two tapestries could be very similar, that tapestries could be connected and have the same threads through them is a really important thing for us to understand kind of as we're coming into the age of Aquarius. And of course, the question of the age of Aquarius is probably going to be its own whole ass episode about the Akashic Records in the middle of this because um, Edgar Casey, who we're going to talk about in just a moment, really thought that the age of Aquarius was coming in like 1998. He was like, that's when it's going to happen, 1998. He like had it written. Y2K. Well, he, yeah, right. Well, he didn't have it written down, but all of his readings were recorded. And that's what he had said. So I think that like as we're entering the age of Aquarius and as we're like really working to be more together, more combined, as humans are really wanting to understand each other, develop that empathy and context, that we need things like past lives in order to contextualize things. Um, I also think like the idea, how many times have you heard a client come to you and be like, I've only had lifetimes where I was rich? How many times have you had that? Yes, or famous. Yes, I've always, or I've been a queen. Yes, just so you know, I was Cleopatra. Yeah, I I had one of these readings uh, five years ago and no one's confirmed it since then, but (laughs) I was Zeus. I don't don't know if people know what what the rich people to poor people ratio has been <laughs> since the dawn of civilization. Uh, but pretty uh, pretty solid that uh, your past life or whatever was as just a street urchin. Well, <laughs> like and very high probability. Listen, if you've had a lifetime where you're like fucking Elon Musk, you're going to be poor. 
a lot of lifetimes because you're making a lot of karma for yourself. And the purpose of reincarnations, the purpose of past lives, I'm going to get into this, but it's to have a multitude of experiences, to understand and contextualize everyone else's experiences around you so that you can be like, oh, fuck, maybe I shouldn't be awful to this person who's living on the street because they have nowhere else to be. Like, maybe I should be the one that's helping fix this problem instead of the one that's walking past them. What? No. So if Put you've had in the road, like if you've been Cleopatra, you've for sure been a fucking earthworm. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> and you probably had many more lifetimes as that than very rich, famous people. So um, I think that that's the purpose of it. So the healing um, and as I, sorry, the healing aspects of this. And as I've been going deeper into the Akashic Records and their history, the people who came before me that paved the way for me to be sitting here behind this mic talking about this, I found that I believe we've been given access to the Akashic Records because we are supposed to use them to hear, heal ourselves and the world. Um, so to me and my philosophy and perspective is the healing power of the Akashic Records lies in the recognition of self. A guiding quote from my work has been, anything will give up its secrets if we love it enough. And I think the Akashic Records are our secrets and that the more <laughs> we choose to love ourselves and dig into the parts of our history that are unpleasant, ugly, abusive, and toxic and do the work to correct and heal those things, the more we can change the world. Now now go in with your snarky comment, which is why I have Jennifer here. <laughs> anything will give up its secrets if you love it enough. <laughs> Sounds like advice that a Game of Thrones character. I fucking is bought that when we went on that trip to Santa Fe. I got it as like a little reminder of our trip. So fuck you. It's fine. Okay. Well, when you say it like that, it does. Right. I know. Like he's like this thing that's really cool. That's like a really awesome, great quote. That's a fantastic way to view ourselves and the things we need to understand. Actually, fuck that because it's not real. Because it's too sentimental. That's not what I said. Uh, I said it sounds like a Game of Thrones character. That's the way he said it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally. Tone means things, RJ. (laughs) I also just think that if you look at, like, generationally, so many generations before us have been worried just about surviving. So awareness of patterns and changing patterns and being able to survive well enough to think beyond that and to think about thriving and to think about moving forward – has really only been like the last few generations, yeah. if that. Like, I would say probably post World War II. Yes, exactly. Like, it's pretty. Yes, exactly. Baby boomers, you know, well, and coming I would in. Say that might even be something kind of exclusive to the American existence that I we agree. have been stable enough to really be like, well, I want to make a million dollars, you know, versus like other areas of the world. Yeah. Most like third, what we'd call third world countries. That is not true for them. They are in survival all the time. A lot of people in America, people who um, are living on the train tracks right outside of our building, they are not thinking about thriving. They're thinking about how they're going to eat tonight. Yep. You know? Absolutely. Uh, Also, I mean, we're in the information age now. We're more connected socially than we ever have been. And you can get information quicker and easier than ever Ever before. before. Uh, so, yeah, you don't have to, like, go to the library or, like, find a monk who will get the right tome that he's transcribed right. 40 times. Well, you don't have to Blavatsky it to really find out things about yourself. <laughs> yeah, you can just, like, Google stuff, right? <laughs> I, I think... Just Google the Akashic Re- Jennifer, just pull up your little search bar in the Akashic Records. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, we're getting, like... I think humanity is having a bit of a rough time adapting to, to Control this. F trauma related to homelessness. Yeah. <laughs> 
that's bad. So true. I mean, but, right. Like, yeah. So I think um, the healing really comes from that and really understanding ourselves, understanding those things. Um, When I have someone, when I do a reading, and I would say I probably have never – I'm trying to remember. I don't think I've ever done a past life or Akashic Record reading where someone was, like, actually a queen. Like, that has never happened. That has never come up for me. I've never, like, seen someone who was, like, this crazy, like, aristocrat. Aristocrat. Cat. It's <laughs> um, a good Disney movie. Yeah, it is. It is, yeah. Um, I have seen that. I've seen people with money, people who are scientists, but I very, very, like, actually just haven't seen that. Um, and I do get people who message me back and they're like, you're actually incorrect because I have always had good lifetimes where I've always had a lot of money. And my response is literally like, if you think that that's true, you're being lied to. And I don't and you know don't what you get would it. learn from that. Right. Like, why would you have that? Then why don't you just be done? Stop with your lessons. And if that is – in in particular, these people are people who have financial issues in this lifetime. Mm. So that would be – which I – anyone in here without financial issues, go ahead and raise your hand. Okay. Yeah. Listen, exactly. <laughs> this, this is all happening because I was Queen of Sheba three lifetimes ago. Good. Sit down and go figure out how to eat tonight. Like, come on, right? Yes. Yeah. So um, I have personally done great healing through the Akashic Records and the information I found there. Um, An example of this is like our beliefs. So beliefs or um, things like vows, vows of poverty, vows of celibacy, all of those things can be things, especially if we really mean them, if we're really attached to them, that they leave that like greater thread. They would be maybe the orange in your tapestry versus the uh, dark sea green that's in the one specific spot in the corner, right? Like, they would be the, like, that would be a more thorough, more far-reaching part of that. So, um, I, one of my beliefs that I found in the Akashic Records is that I had a belief that I had to be willing to die to be loved. Like, I was like, if I'm going to be loved, I have to be willing to die for that. And uh, that was not good, and I didn't want that. (laughs) That really shaped a lot of my relationships in very negative ways. So I wanted to resolve that unhealthy belief. I contacted one of my energy-working friends, and I told her I'd found this belief um, tied to past life, and I asked if she could heal it. And she didn't heal it so much as she found the thread. And I was like, it is this very specific belief that is tied to this very specific lifetime that I can give you. And then together we just released that. So that is a really awesome example of how we can be using the Akashic Records to heal, change, and shift things for us. Yeah, but how can we use it to fight the commies? That was not the article. So (laughs) sorry. Like, I think that's so insightful because awareness of something is how you start to change it. So if we have an abundance of information in the records to pull from, not Mm -hmm. punny on a tapestry thread pull, but (laughs) But if we have a lot of that info, then we we can have more awareness. And if we can have more awareness, we can shift a lot more because it's the unconscious patterns we carry that tend to be the most disruptive and difficult to change. Well, and I would say that that's one of the biggest – or maybe the hardest parts of, like, receiving therapy, like, going to therapy, receiving help, is, like, understanding and realizing that you're your own fucking problem and it's up to you to fix that. 
Like, that's what it is. And that's the part of therapy that people have the hardest time with. That's the thing that, like, when I do readings, I typically – I like to develop relationships with my clients. I think you do, too, where it's, like, a longer term and, like, you're really working on and helping them resolve things, not just for, like, three readings one month when they're really going through it, but that they can rely on you, that you kind of become part of their support team. And that's kind of my goal. Um, And I'm definitely a little bit of a hard ass where I'm like, okay, well, what are you doing about this? Like, when I have things come up, I'm like, well, how are you addressing this? What does this look like for you? Um, Mostly because I think that it's really important that we're honest about these things, but that we're compassionate with ourselves about them and that we understand there are solutions to these things. If we have the bravery to realize how shitty we are, (laughs) like each person is awful and we have to undo that. Uh, sometimes I like to think about you in the context of Me? like a medieval like witch in a hut, uh, and like the people in the village are like, "Well, he hates that." Except I got hemorrhoids, and I need to <laughs> go deal. With, need That's to put true. the salve on me bum bum. <laughs> Honestly, it's a good thing that I have like a smooth voice that makes people want to listen to me. Because if I didn't, people would be like, "This bitch is so mean," and she's hard to listen to too. <laughs> like <laughs> you finesse things at least a little. I do. I try to. Yeah. Well, the worst is I think people probably cringe when I'll be like saying something and then I stop. And then I go, I'm trying to think how I want to say this. Yes. Like, because people get nervous. Yeah, they do, which is They fair. think you're trying to tell them how they're going to die. Right. No, I yeah. just, it's I don't not really me. how it works. Yeah. <laughs> 800 <laughs> hours, 5 minutes, 12, 11, 10, 9 mm-hmm. seconds. Start yeah. your countdown. Right. I am not a hard ass, but I do like to ask people what they're really asking me because yeah. a lot of times. They think they're asking this thing, but the the reason behind it is this question over here. Right. And so it's just easier to just get to what the not like to beat the around nitty the nitty gritty of it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely, for sure. For sure. Um, okay, so now we're going to move into kind of talking about reincarnation because reincarnation is the basis of past lives, right? I guess like the belief of reincarnation is the basis that we can access uh, past lives from. Yep. So the origins of reincarnation are obscure. <laughs> like there's, it's just been part of like Eastern. Mysticism, Eastern cultures um, forever, and really, like, the cradle of life was in Africa and, like, the East. And so um, when we don't have a lot of recorded history, when, like, white Christians have done as much as they can to erase that white history and take it away from individual and POC cultures, um, yeah, we don't have it. So that's one of – it's one of those things. Um, So – We do see discussion of reincarnation in the early Indian philosophy as well as Greek uh, (laughs) pre-Socrates, Socrates, and Celtic truth. Socrates. I don't – words, no. No. I'm getting real good these Greek words doing this show. Or you could do – Yeah. Socratic. Pre-Socrates. Okay. It just is like before Socrates is is when we started seeing those in like Greek cultures. Um, And we also see them in Celtic Druids. So, which I did not know that they hmm. believed in reincarnation, but that's kind of interesting. Did you know that, RJ? I did. Oh, okay. As Good. a tree or just? I think some of them are trees. I think druids come back as trees because they're the wise, um, aren't they? They're like yeah. more protectors. So, so like, 
you want to take it out of the context of reincarnation as you know it from yeah. like Eastern philosophies. And there, th- this is actually closer to some uh, native and Shinto beliefs about mm-hmm. reincarnation where everything is connected and everything is kind of technically the same thing. So you just kind of return to that same thing and then you grow back out of it as something else or something okay. new. Well, that's okay. – I mean I would say that that is my belief, which I'm also going to – talk about in just a minute here. So yes, um, that feels very, I would say, consistent. Um, And I would say that that's actually not inconsistent from Eastern philosophy and reincarnation. Um, So reincarnation is the idea that each living being, depending on your religion, not all religions that believe in reincarnation believe that each living being reincarnates. That is not true. If you're like, oh, I have this one that believes in reincarnation, I know what that means. You probably don't. So I would really encourage you to look at that. And actually do some research to understand it. So each living being has a soul, and that soul is eternal. When the body perishes, the soul either transmigrates into another body. So some um, reincarnation, like cosmologies, say that when you die, that soul goes into like a new baby. So midsummer, when they like sacrifice themselves and then the baby is born and they're like, well, the baby is going to be named after this woman and that's her soul. That's a kind of transmigration where they Mm -hmm. don't go back to wherever they come from. They just stay here and then go into a new body. Um, Or... Another form of reincarnation is passing through the veil and returns to a new body, which I believe much more in that, like, passing through the veil. Because you have to kind of pass through the veil to go home. I call it home. Um, to, like, I don't know, reintegrate yourself, to understand what you've learned, what you haven't learned, to figure out what's going to happen next, all of those things. So I don't believe that we stay tied to Earth because, like, this is – Earth is not real. (laughs) Like, this is, like, a weird random dimension that we're all kind of in right now. And the only thing that's real is home, is what's through the veil. Um, I'm going to tangent just – pop culture tangent just a little bit. Okay. There's a really great anime called Death Parade. Ooh. And the whole point of Death Parade is um, when people die, they end up at a bar called the Quindecum. And that's the veil, is this bar. And the bartender uh, has the people who have died play a uh, bar game. But as they play the game, it reveals parts of their personality. And the real trick of the game is that the bartender is trying to determine if they learned what they needed to in life Mm. uh, or – if uh, after several, you know, reincarnation cycles, it's finally time to send them to the void. So mm. it's not if you win the game, the bartender becomes the judge based on how you play of whether you get reincarnated or whether you go to the void, Interesting. heaven or hell. Okay. Yeah. So and that's like there's so many. It's just weird. Like the, you know, um, when we look at kind of what media is talking about at different times, like we all of a sudden have all this multiverse stuff which is, like, also, you know, kind of true. It's interesting how, like, reincarnation, the Akashic Library, all of these things with different names are, like, quintessential in world-building parts of things. And even when people don't know about the Akashic Records or don't even believe in it, have never studied it, that they're still copying it. And that's, you know, part of the uh, collective unconsciousness, I would say. So, the reason for reincarnation in past lives varies quite a bit from tradition to tradition. It is my belief that we have these experiences to access them because we are here to learn and each lifetime is a step in that evolution. Um, Okay, I have like a couple of long, long paragraphs that we're going to go. So, 
I know you're going to ask what the purpose of all of this junk is, and I would say that it really depends on who you ask. Edgar Kaser, <laughs> Edgar Kaser, Edgar Kaser, Edgar Casey is his name, who we haven't talked about yet, posits that the purpose of life, reincarnation, and all of this is to become a companion of God. That is what he says when he is asked in his uh, readings. It is to become a companion of God. Casey is a very Christian man who first understood his psychic gifts by seeing an angel when he was 12 years old. He viewed reincarnation as something that was available exclusively on the grounds of spending those lifetimes faithfully adhering to the Christian doctrine. Through that practice, one would become a companion of God or someone who is holy, wise, compassionate, etc. to the same extent that God is, essentially saying that we are evolving to the point of becoming being equal to God in most ways except like magic like how he makes the world like other than that we are to become god this might upset you but that sounds really mormon no no it doesn't upset me i don't care it's all christian i don't care yeah <laughs> but yeah that's like the whole like to become a god mormon theory well, right it's to, well, it's to become like unto god a companion of god become your own god of your own universe well whatever. and i would say he does not think that we become gods it is not about that. It's about God having people who relate to him. Like God created souls so that they could go through the evolution so he wouldn't be lonely anymore. So it's like God, like, what if people were one of me? Yes, that's that. <laughs> so um, what do you think about that? Is that kind of similar to Linda Howe or kind of – does she have like a theory on it? No, I – not that I could speak to in any kind of educated way. I I feel like um, there are a lot of like a, a lot of what I understand just in working in the records. I, I don't know about God and being yeah. a God like God, a friend to God. Well, and I think when so probably anyone who doesn't work in this and have to understand their theory and develop a theory and communicate that theory, probably a god, like a god, a companion of god, probably all those are the same fucking thing. When you're down into, like, this nitty-gritty of the theory, I feel that it's very – I have to for my own, like, okay, what the fuck am I talking about so I can explain it? I have to have that approach. But, yeah, anyway. I totally hear you. I feel like a lot of what goes on – is for progression. I mm-hmm. don't know like what the end, end goal is. Yep. Goal is except that I do know that when our when we are done with that whatever that goal is, that we can then turn around and help hu- other humans so believe, or other yeah. spirits be able to keep learning their lessons too. Like a so guide, it's like a right? perpetuation of things. Yes, exactly. But no, I don't. I don't know about having your own. And reward at the end, except for the learning for the sake of learning, maybe. Um, I've never I've never really seen that, uh, at least not so far. Yeah. So this is kind of my thoughts on that and kind of what I think the reason of reincarnation is. This is what I've got right now. I don't know. Nice. I've spent months on this to try to just fucking figure it out. Um, so I tend to agree with Casey, actually, except for like the biblical Christian shit. I don't like that. <laughs> the cosmology that I most align with is an emanation model. So do, you, do we know what that means? 
Okay, I have found this, like, in the depths of the internet in deep, like, fucking theosophy shit. Elle like, sent me screenshots of the sketchy Russian websites, <laughs> like, 100% infected with KGB spyware. RJ was like, don't get a virus, and I sent the, like, little thing off to the side of the browser that said, not secure. And I was like, doing it for Blavatsky. Like... <laughs> You risk taking. Yeah, I am. So, um, emanation means that we are not a separate source from, or we're not separate from source, that we are part of source. So, um, I believe in source, and source is not human. It is not really even a being. It is source. It's not God. It's not like just source. Um, I believe that souls are all inherently connected to source because we are a piece of source. So I believe that each individual soul is like a little tentacle that comes out of source. So we are not separate from source. We are source. Um, And I believe that the purpose of existence is for source to gain understanding through experience. So that would be why when we look at things and when you look at all of this through a Christian lens, which Christianity tells us there's inherently good and inherently bad. So everything falls into some sort of that. Um, In emanation, in source, and looking at it from this perspective, there is no inherently bad experience or bad action because the only purpose is to gain experience. So everything is some sort of shade of gray. And there are things that as humans, as beings, make us feel better. I feel better when I'm kind to people because people are kind to me and that makes my life easier. That's not because it's inherently good or inherently right to do so, but because I'm selfish and I want to have a good life, so I'm nice to people. Like, that's kind of my perspective, and I think that's fine. So the idea here is, like, we're really getting down to splitting hairs inside of, like— whether or not a companion of God, are we emanated from source? Are we made by source? Are we a child of God that is here to become like God? Those things are really splitting hairs. No, stop it. (laughs) Please. I hate that so much. Are you a child of God? Oh, stop. Literally because I was like, I'm not doing the Christian shit today. You're like, let me whip out the fucking Bible songs. Those are from young young men's probably. Uh, no, that song specifically is a general hymn, but mm. it's a very popular one among Mormons. Yeah, so and that I would say that Mormons believe in the like child of God as like each soul is a separate entity that is trying to become a god by adhering to God's rules to earn that, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, but that sums it up. Um, do you have any thoughts? On what I just said about that, like the emanation model, the experience, the no inherently good or bad. I find that I find that very insightful because the vast majority of what I'm shown when I work in the records is what we learn. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily even, I mean, how we experience it is one thing, but it's the lesson that we pull out of it that is much more important. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, and even if the lesson is totally off the yeah. beaten path or errant or anything like that, it's still like, oh, I pulled this lesson out. And maybe it's a lesson like, you know, I, I need to be willing to die, you know, like yeah, you, you were yeah. saying, but it's still a lesson. So, I, yeah, I think we're always trying to learn and we're always trying to understand. And, you know, just like you can empathize with someone because you've actually done or right. been through what they've been through, whereas like you can only sympathize. Illness, yeah. yeah, if you haven't, I feel like as we, you know, experience things and learn them, we learn them on a deeper level. And that makes a lot of sense to me. I also find that to be really true because I, I don't feel like there's a... 
hierarchy of any kind. It doesn't feel like we're in competition for like first companion to God or, you know what I mean? Or something like that ever. uh, Do I get to be God's best boy in God's harem? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. God's reverse harem. (laughs) And I know that in some religious um, traditions there are, like literally there are hierarchies of like what happens after you die. That is exactly Mormonism. Yeah. Yeah. You know, super heaven, like you you can get like heaven, heaven plus, heaven plus Hulu, uh, <laughs> and then like super, super heaven premium, full premium. I was package. gonna say yeah, like and then the cable package is all the way at the top, <laughs> and no one gets it anymore. Yeah. I love it. It's five hundred dollars a month, yeah. and no one can afford that in this economy. And now it's time. It's time. It's time. It's time. It's time. Is it time? It's time. Tell the village. Tis time. Tis time. And it's time for Blavatsky. Madam Blavatsky. Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. HPB. The channel of the Great White Brotherhood. The bringer of wisdom. (laughs) The the greatest fraud of spirituality. Blavatsky. A short, stout, forceful woman with strong arms, several chins, unruly hair, a determined mouth, and large, liquid, slightly bulging eyes is among the ranks of the most controversial occultists in American history. Oh, don't, don't forget the chain, history, the chain smoking and the uh, eating four fried eggs in only, butter Only every fried day. eggs and butter. Only and fried eggs and 12 butter. 12 packs of cigarettes. For, yeah, for any. Every day. Every day. Um, I do want to note in this... Um, I think that, like, Blavatsky has really been unfairly represented in so many ways. People talk about just how, like, grotesquely fat she was. And, like, she weighed 230 pounds. I'm about 10 pounds lighter than she was at this point. And they're like, there's no fucking way she could climb a mountain. But you know what? I can I can do that. I can go for hikes. I can walk, like, 15,000 steps in a day. I can go for a little bike ride. Like, I can be quite active. So I'm going to need y'all to shut the fuck up with that fat phobic shit and understand also that, yes, she was a very curvy woman who ate whatever the fuck she wanted and smoked a lot of cigarettes. And she had dropsy. There's She did have dropsy, and that was part of the reason that she died um, at, like, the very end of her life. That was one of the things. She did not live very long. She only lived to be in her 60s, um, which she was born in the 1800s. <laughs> You're telling so. me 12 packs a day makes you die in your 60s? Yeah. That sounds like propaganda from well, the government. I mean, also, let's talk about the fact that they were not packs of cigarettes. There were bags of tobacco that she rolled oh, herself. <laughs> like, bags of tobacco. Yes. Like, she was, she made her own stuff. Um, her ideologies were some of the first found by Aleister Crowley and helped create the foundation of his studies in the occult. She is also the reason you went to yoga last week and why you, listener, my lovely American whose family was Christian as far back as they can trace the tree, know that your heart chakra is associated with the color green. It is because of Blavatsky. That is why we have those things. Jennifer, what do you know about Blavatsky? Um, only what you've told me, really. Um, before that, I had never even heard of her. Right. Isn't that wild? Yes. And it's so funny because she was so um, famous or infamous. Infamous, yeah, I think. Maybe that's yeah. a better word. Yeah. Um, all I know is that she was a Russian lady mm-hmm. who um, was a really good supposed psychic who uh-huh. turned out to be a fraud. Well, and I would say in a lot of these cases, um, especially like when spirituality, theosophy, all of these things are really started, um, it's this very strange intersection of like 
time where people felt like we had science and you could prove things. And so there was like this need to prove your your realism or like that you can be a real psychic and people being fucking psycho about it. Yeah, we're talking like Victorian era. Yeah. Well, this is 1831 is when she was born. The Fox sisters founded and really started spirituality in the 1820s. And so she's born like kind of right at that same time that those things were coming into it. Of course, the Fox sisters are also very controversial, but they were the foundation of spiritualism, which is one of the things that I love. The spiritual the spiritual camps and spirituality is something that I feel like I resonate more with theosophy, but they're very similar in different ways. RJ. Yeah. What do you know about Blavatsky? Who man. Uh, so I listened to the last podcast on the left uh, coverage of Blavatsky Did we with just, you. Yeah, I think we listened to like the last two episodes, maybe last one episode of it. Yeah. Like for the most part, um, she has a pretty remarkable story. I feel like her story kind of like set the template for uh, stories about – psychic seeking enlightenment and end up going down the fraudulent path in mm-hmm. order to maintain power uh, and just kind of like going mad uh, with exerting spiritual power over uh, other people and convincing everybody that you're special. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> which like, yeah, and I'm sure you'll want to talk about like the fraud stuff uh, at some point and maybe even well, in a later episode. Well, it's kind episode, of throughout but... because it's so hard. I, there's a lot of parts of that for sure. Yeah, yeah I, I will say that like... Uh, I I do sometimes talk a lot of shit on on Theosophy and Blavatsky. I don't think Blavatsky was a Nazi, but I think Nazis found attractive angles in her ideas to exploit and yeah. rewrite. Well, and part of the thing, um, Blavatsky did not pick a good heir to leave Theosophy to. There wasn't someone who really was able to kind of navigate you know, World War One and World War Two with theosophy, with this brand new kind of the um it's like a philosophical philosoph philosophical wow, I was like philosophical philosophical Velociraptical (laughs) (laughs) philosophical movement when I think people during those wars needed faith and they needed God and they needed something to believe in more than just we're all connected. I don't think that we're all connected really holds very well when people are being persecuted and murdered because their noses are longer than other people's. So it's kind of hard because who knows what would have happened if she had, like, lived longer, if there was an heir, if it was never meant to be anyway and we got what we needed from it. But you know, you, what, know? you know what does hold up? There's a secret group of people that secretly run everything. All the time. Secret All the secrets time. everywhere. Se- secret, secret group that's secretly in charge of the government and secretly running your life. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Find Blavatsky. Yeah, so, like, Blavatsky's idea was, like, there are people who have achieved, like, a certain level of enlightenment, and those were the masters, right? That was kind of taken and readapted into uh, and turned dark into, like, Bolshevism. Well, kind of. I mean, I think that that's kind of an oversimplification because 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 it's like terrifically complex and one of the things that Blavatsky did very intentionally and very fucking well was hide the origins of things and make them so convoluted that she's the only one that can understand them and i think that that was very purposeful because she didn't want to be dispendable and when you're a person who doesn't want to have sex with men views yourself as more powerful than men is like not traditionally pretty is not quiet is not very feminine um you feel very disposable you feel like a person that has 
has no place in this world. And so there are a lot of things that happen inside of that that, I don't know, it's really complex. It's hard to talk about. Um, there's a lot of different parts of this. And I think I, like, I think that Blavatsky being kind of the start of the Akashic Records is so important and so thoroughly overlooked. Because if you're not ready to talk about Blavatsky, look at Blavatsky and be like, holy cow, what the fuck was this person doing? Like, she's absolutely insane. And she lied to everyone her entire life. And understand that there's context, that there's reasons that she was a person just like us and she was trying to create something. If you're not ready to do that... I don't think you're ready for the Akashic Records. And so this is like, this is going to be hard. It's going to be hard to talk about this stuff. It's going to be hard to figure out how you feel about it. Be ready for that. Because if you aren't, then like you probably are not ready for the Akashic Records and you should continue reading tarot for a bit and then try again. Um, not that the tarot is not also incredibly complex and interwoven and all of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, like it is classic cult leader playbook to say, I am the only one that has access to this and I am the only one with the knowledge and you need me to decode it and speak uh, for these spiritual beings. Yeah. Okay. So while there are many, many things to say about about Blavatsky and so many places we could start the story, I think we should start at the beginning. In a library in Russia – full of Rosicrucian texts, books of magic, and secrets. Yelena Petrovna von Han was born in 1831 to a German-Russian aristocratic family. Her father served in the military, and her mother died when she was just 10 years old. She grew up pouring pouring through texts of ancient wisdom, telling her sister and their friends stories at parties about great adventures and dreams. She would make up these stories about all these missions that she'd gone on and talk about her past lives. And she did this in that lifetime and this one in that lifetime. And her sister was basically like, I don't know what the fuck she's talking about. Like, I have no idea, but she just said a bunch of shit. So it's kind of interesting because we see that, like most cult leaders, um, you know, starting in her childhood. Meaning she believed her own bullshit? I don't know that it was bullshit. It could have been this incredibly talented woman actually accessing her past lives Mm. and people not understanding that. And that's one of the things. We did not have the words, the way to talk about this until now. So how can we at all look through history and say, oh, these people definitely knew what they were talking about when we don't even have the words to discuss it right now? When, like, I'm like, what do you think about this brand new theory that I have about why we're alive? When, like, that's happening in this moment, how can we... 200 years ago, look at that with any sort of like authoritative knowledge or indication of whether or not it was real. Yeah. I, well, there's also the uh, – it's also pretty classic to see cult leaders tell their own stories about their own childhoods like Joseph Smith. She did not. Uh, no. So, what, so this is a story like from her sister? This is her biography. Her biography? Okay. I don't know if Helena Blavatsky knew that she would change the world or if she just wanted to understand the world around her. I'm not sure where the inspiration came from for her greatest works. We don't know where she actually trained. I do know that it all started with mysteries and magic and that it ended the same way it began. Helena Blavatsky is controversial in part because of how mysterious her life is. We have accounts of her whereabouts and activities until she was 18 years old and then nothing until she moved to New York in 1873 at 42 years old. This lost time is something that people point to for her untrustworthiness because this is the time when she is uncovering her powers and building her magic abilities. 
Speaking about HPV and doing her justice is something that feels just like really, really hard. <laughs> in some of her actions, the things she said, etc., she totally misrepresented herself and took actions directly to mislead her following and the public in order to keep her re- keep up with her reputation and make people think that she really was the baddest bitch around. But I also think that she legitimately uncovered, discovered, and explained things that fundamentally changed our world for the better. So I think that we can have both of those things. We can hold space for both of those things to be true. Of course, this wouldn't be one of my episodes if I didn't take a moment to remind you all about the lenses through which we consume media. (laughs) HPB was born into a world that really didn't have a place for her. She happened to live through the publishing of Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species in 1856. Darwin's theories absolutely shocked the world and changed the way that people thought about their cosmology. The religion of spiritualism came out of New York with the Fox Sisters and spread through high society like wildfire in the 1840s. The intersection of science, philosophy, and spirituality created this great, really, really strange space in human history that we've talked about in depth throughout the podcast, like just different points that we've pointed to. The 1920s, Tassiomancy, that kind of stuff was also coming out of that same era. Um One of the results of this desire to have more fact-based information and to have proof of things was that spiritualists and mediums felt like they had to produce proof on a continuously larger scale or they would lose their audience. Also, how many careers can women have at this time? Uh, All of one, being a mommy. Or being a psychic or a teacher. And so a lot of ways, this is women's only way in holding on to this is my how I'm going to make money. This is my independence. This is how I build who I am becomes it's very dire. This is something that we in America and as women in America cannot understand today. There's no way for us to understand that. So that's a really important part of this context that I'm just going to need everyone to kind of figure out how to deal with. (laughs) Yeah. Well, also, like, imagine being a Victorian and everything that you and your, like, previous generations have been told has been just shook to its core. Right. All your previous beliefs just shattered. The way that the world has worked for 2,000 years is gone. If that was fake and made up and replaced by this new thing – What else is fake and made up and what other new things are there to find? Right, right. Exactly that. Likewise, the Fox sisters and Blavatsky are some of the very first women to impact and influence culture in such broad ways. Like they're like kind of the very beginning. Maybe if we look at Marie Antoinette, but I'm not really sure that she shaped it so much was the face of what was wrong with it. One day I'll do an episode on rapping uh, and we will cover the Fox sisters. I, you know, I was listening to Ghost Church, which is that podcast on Casadega, which is one of the spiritualist camps in Florida that my dad and I went to in November. And she did like this whole thing. She went and just stayed in Casadega and wandered around and talked in depth about the Fox sisters. And I mean, we might look at the Fox sisters and kind of be like, frauds. But I mean, the oldest Fox sisters struggled with alcoholism her entire life and eventually died of it. Like there is real tragedy and real things that go into affecting these women's lives. Um, I don't think Blavatsky was malicious in her life and her stories. I do not believe that to be the truth. I think she was a truly intelligent, gifted, brash, confident woman who was going to carve a place for herself in this world no matter what it took. I think there are a whole bunch of men who are much more comfortable with women being quiet in the corner and making dinner than they are with seeing them leaders of the world in the base of a spiritual movement. 
We can spend so much time talking about internalized misogyny and the way that that still impacts people to like this moment, like right now. They didn't even have a word for it then. There was not even the word misogyny to explain like the natural order of men being more important than women. It was just the way of the world. In order to change the world, one has to be willing to be the bad guy. I think that's what people hate the most about Blavatsky. She didn't give a fuck if she looked like the bad guy. She was on a divinely inspired mission and her fierceness cleared the field for me to be here. We can acknowledge the fuckery that people do without totally discounting their contributions. Hold space for both the multiple truths and mixed feelings through this. I found myself much fonder and more reverent of her on this side of my research. So I hope, like, we all kind of find our way there. Okay. Any questions before we get started with kind of her biography? All righty. One of the first outlandish stories of Blavatsky is about her first marriage to the man who would give her her most memorable feature, her last name. Nikifor V. Blavatsky and Helena got married on Nikifor. Jul- Nikifor. Nikifor, you say? Mm-hmm. Nikifor. Come, come, Nikifor. We hunt in the woods tonight. Seriously, how do you spell that? Um, N-I-K-I-F-O-R. Uh, I guess they're, they're Russian. Okay. N- little Nikifor caught the squirrel in woods, and now we celebrate with boxing match with him. Okay. Come try to beat up Papa Nikifor. Oh, I love this. I love the marriage that happened here. Okay. Um, Nikifor and Helena got married on July 7th, 1849. She was 18 years old, and her husband was 40. According to, bi- to biographies that have been published about HPB, she decided to marry Nikifor on a whim because her governess teased her, saying that she was so ill-tempered even the ugly old Blavatsky wouldn't marry her. In order to cope with her own foolishness and embarrassment, she had to run away. She eventually came home to follow through with the commitment to marry Blavatsky. So she kind of has told the story to several different biographers that like, well, my first marriage was to this old man because my governess was teasing me that no one would want to be with me. And I was like, I'm going to marry Blavatsky. And then she was like, oh, fuck, that was maybe a bad idea. I'm going to run away forever. And about three months later, she came back and then made that commitment. Um... However, according to family friends, town gossips, and Helena's own letters to her friend Prince uh, Dundukov-Korkoskov, she was actually probably in love with and chasing after her friend and fellow student of the occult, Prince Galitzin. Ah, Prince Galitzin. Um, I don't know how you... So it's G-A-L-I-T-Z-I-N, Galitzin. Galitzin. Um, we don't have basically any information about him. He's a prince. He's a secretive Wait, prince. That wasn't his first name, like the like no. the artist formerly known as. No, okay. no, I, I, so and like I only found mention of this on like the random sketchy Russian translated website called katkinhesalink.net, and it was taken from a website called Blavatsky.net that is no longer exists. And this whole thing is entitled "New Light on the First Marriage of HPB" by Marina Caesar Sesson. Listen, I think the KGB wrote this. Maybe. <laughs> So even though Blavatsky does acknowledge this prince as one of her friends and someone that she spent time with in her grandfather's library, she does not say that they were in love or that they ran away. However, they would spend hours together talking about his masonry, the universe, and magic. Because he was a mason and a Rosicrucian. So in her grandfather's library, which he was also a mason and a Rosicrucian, they would sit there and talk about it. And Blavatsky was a person who, and I deeply relate to this, that you're just so intrigued by the theosophy, the like philosophy, everything around you. And you can't find anyone who wants to talk about it because everyone wants to talk about being in love or whatever. And it's really boring. Uh, and so, like, I feel like that's that. 90%, uh, not to just 
mentor any clients, but I feel like a large majority of your clients are interested in uh, talking about relationships and yeah. relationship turmoil. Jennifer's like, in fairness, it's probably the most confusing part of life. I would say so, especially when we start adding shit like soulmates and twin flames in there. It's so much. The twin flames. Well, and I I mean, not to say that, like, I don't have deep love for my clients that have gotten me here based off of relationship readings. I see you. I'll continue to do them. I love doing them. But, you know, like, when that is your work and you're doing your work because you love your work and you want to understand it and it feels like... I mean, like me, right? For months, people have asked me how I'm doing, and the only thing I can talk about is, like, fucking Blavatsky or Casey. Like, I'm just like, oh, you want to hear what I find out about Blavatsky? And people are like, who the fuck's Blavatsky? And I'm like, oh, you don't know Blavatsky? Like, like that, right? Blavatsky was a very similar person who was, you know, 17 years old, looking for people to understand her without a mom, who basically raised herself in a library of the occult. Um, so they would spend hours together talking about his masonry, the universe, and magic. He was a magic <laughs> practitioner, and she likely ran away from home with him so that they could go on expeditions together. We only talk about three things in the relationship. M- music, magic, and masonry. The three M's. Um, because of her state, because of the station of her family, there is gossip and issues surrounding her disappearance. She likely came home and married Blavatsky so that she could be free of duty to her family and begin her lost years as a free woman. So she basically, like, really probably what actually happened is that she was like, fuck this. I'm just going to go run away and I'm going to go, like, have my life and go have my lost years on my own. Like, that was when she wanted to start them. However, her family, the town gossip, like, everything like that basically made her come home. And she was like, fuck it. I'm going to marry this guy and then I'm going to go do what I want because now I'm married and no one can tell me what to do. So it was like a thought of, like, how do I play my own system of, like, oppression against itself? Um so, remember the letters that I sent you? Yeah. Okay. It's about time. Do you want me to pull them up? So, HPB wrote to her friend, Prince du- Don Dukoff, Korskakoff. It's so hard to say. D-O-U, no, D-O-N-D-O-U-K-O-F hyphen K-O-R-A-S-A-K-O-F-F. Korskakoff. Korskakoff. I don't know. Um. And so she told her friend in a letter why she got married. Letter number one. Do you know why I married old Blavatsky? Because whereas all young men laughed at magical superstitions, he believed in them. He has so often talked to me about the sorcerers of Erevan. And that sounds like J.R.R. Tolkien made it up. Oh, wait. Do you want to know? It's actually the capital of Yemen. So there you go. Oh, okay. Thank you. Uh, The sorcerers of Erevan, of the mysterious sciences of the Kurds and Persians. And I took him in order to use him as a latchkey to the latter. But I never was his wife. I swear it upon the hour of my death, never have I been wife Blavatsky, although I lived for a year under his roof. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Like, this was a marriage so that she could kind of have the next step in her stuff. I'll 
You're going to read it after I read this passage, the next letter. After their wedding, they left for a honeymoon near near Erevan, the capital of Armenia, the capital of Armenia. They spent about three months together before Elena took off on horseback, leaving old Blavatsky in the dust. HPB writes another letter to her friend PDK, because I just decided that was fucking easier than trying to pronounce his name. Okay. Letter two. Neither have I been anybody's wife, as eagle evil tongues have pretended, for I was for about ten months in search of the astral mineral that had to have the red virgin pure and entire, and I did not find that mineral. What I wanted and searched for was the subtle magnetism that one exchanges the human salt, (laughs) in quotes, and Father Blavatsky did not have it. And to find it and obtain it, I was ready to sacrifice myself, to dishonor myself, exclamation point. Mm -hmm. This did not suit the old man. Hence quarrels, nearly battles, till I ran away from him and came to Tiflis from Erevan on horseback, where I went into hiding with my grandmother. So, I mean, you can tell from her letters, she's she's no fucking, like, housewife, and she's not about to be. And she's marrying people who are, you know, like, old, undesirable people that she's just like, what are you going to do, get me? Like... <laughs> Listen, uh, don't want no scrubs, all right? right? Come back when you have the astral mineral, all right? Yeah, Come back when you have the red virgin salt. Be ready. Then we'll talk. To show me how we make that or don't show up at all. Exactly (laughs) that. Um, Whichever story you believe about her disappearance and the beginning of her marriage, I think we can see a greater commitment to uncovering the secrets of the universe than any other person at all. She also does seem to have a fondness for people as long as they are exactly in alignment with what she thinks. That was one of the issues oh. um, with her <laughs> husband is like she was like, well, maybe we can just go do this shit together. Like because he because he was into it. He was like, yeah, let's talk about the Rosicrucians. Let's go to Erevan. And like Erevan in. So this comes from that, like the um, the website, the article. And really, after I looked at like the bottom of that article, it had lots of lots and lots of legit sources to it. So it's just like this weird, like an article put onto a website, taken from that website, put onto another website that was somehow translated into English from Russian. So there's like That's still kind of sus. Though. Yeah, it's very sus. Um, this is very like reminiscent of my Bamba, my Baba Vanga episode, where I was like, listen. <laughs> Finding this human was hard. Um, so I think you're just into Slavic mystics. I think so. I'm beginning to like be like, I feel like maybe I need to go there and just like figure some things out. Not right now. <laughs> no, not right now. Not, not the time. Not right now. No. <laughs> um, so she pretty much like I think that she kind of had a plan that was like, maybe I'll go with Nikifor and we'll just kind of see if it works, see how long it works for. Come on, Nikifor, we're looking for the red virgin salt of man. Yes, that. Um, whichever story... Oh, um, when Nikifor returned home and Helena did not, her family eventually found her at her grandmother's and sent her father to collect her. They allowed her to stay there for about three weeks before someone was sent for her. And instead of sticking around to be turned into a wife she never wanted to be, she headed to Constantinople and finally began her lost years. Istanbul, Constantinople. Yep. Istanbul. So, like, when you said that, like, cult leaders want to talk about their childhood, no, she fucking didn't. She just was like, you don't need to know how I got this. 
I've got it. You couldn't even begin to understand what I had to go through to get this shit, so shut the fuck up. Like, that's how she felt about it. Which so, like, she had to fucking fight every moment to learn these things, and you small people couldn't even begin to understand it. Like, her books are gibberish. I don't know if that's much better. <laughs> yeah. They are gibberish because she's, in, I think that's intentional, really. Oh. Yeah, like, so she no, has a couple of works. I've read some of it. And it reads like the most stream of consciousness, methed out prose poetry I've ever found. Her like greatest work is called um, The Secret Doctrine. It's over a thousand pages and literally it is unreadable. There's like no punctuation. It's like, and then the great fire will burn the sword and the sword is the finger and all the fingers of the sword. That's not actually from it. He doesn't know. He's just That's not actually from it, but that's what it sounds like. No, I'm telling people that's not what it sounds like, but it is... It sounds like that, but it is not those yeah. words. Yeah. It's pretty bad, really. Um, there are abridged like, copies. Like scriptural? Uh, I would say it is way more stream of consciousness than it's scripture. Like, it, so, it, it's like revelations dialed up yes. to from 11 to 21. <laughs> well, okay. and I would say um, her – so she is the one that kind of came up with the emanation model. Theosophy is where we get the emanation model from. And so in her cosmology and the way that she – the way that the world was under – was explained to her the way that she understood it, what she discovered was like basically everything happens in sevens. So she'd be like, there are seven universes with seven planets and the seven planets have the one planet with the seven races and the seven turret. Like it just is like Got this, it. like she sounds insane. And it's, she says that it's because she's, you know, in contact with these spirits channeling. and just channeling Got what it. they're telling her. Um, there are a bridge. So I have the abridged abridged and annotated copy of The Secret Doctrine. And so, like, that's kind of the closest I'm going to get to actually reading it because I need to understand what she said, but I do not feel that I can, like, trench through Honestly, The Secret Doctrine. like, we, we just saw Doctor Strange the Multiverse of Madness, and I bet the fucking Darkhold reads, like, The Secret Doctrine. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. So this is the this is the story of the uh, wow this story is the first one that's recorded with different events by different people, and I would say that this is the beginning of that pattern for her. It seems like things that she says about herself are all focused towards cultivating very specific specific perception and image of herself. Last podcast on the left has a really excellent series on Blavatsky, and they talk about all these things: the multiple names, the use of channeled the use of channeled messages from an entire team of men, the smokescreen over her personal life, etc., as ways that she dehumanized herself for for a specific purpose of deifying herself. Blavatsky at some point realized that she was different from everyone around her, and she would seek the company of people who wanted to talk about magic and the occult and all of the things out there. And it felt like she was the only one who really got it. How does one go from the daughter of a Russian military aristocrat, aristocrat to the only channel of the truth? Well... By separating oneself so far from their human bits that everyone has no choice but to see you as something other than human. The lost years of Blavatsky's weren't, aren't truly, like, as lost as it seems. Like, everyone's like, nobody knows where she was and what she did. But she has fucking letters talking about her marriage with her friends. Like, historically, we have all of these letters. The people that she was working with are really high up people in, like, the government and, like, world orders and shit. These people kept their letters and have them. But the mystery is more compelling and fun to believe. 
My new favorite author is a theosophist professor from SUNY named K. Paul Johnson. I love him. I'm probably going to propose to him. (laughs) I don't know if he's married, but we should get married so I can pick his brain, all of those things. He went through all of HPB's letters and recreated her last year. So, like, he was like, I think that it's actually totally possible to recreate these and understand who her masters are, where they come from, where she was when she discovered them, all of that. And this is one of the texts that I've been, like, working through kind of in my study of Blavatsky to really kind of get down to the the bones of it. Um, so he suggests the HPB's white brotherhood, which is what she says she channels from. That's like the idea of having like a team of guides. People would like say like the 12 angels or whatever the fuck. Um, it's the like master, like the the white brotherhood is actually comprised mm. of real people she, nah, she traveled with and learned from her travels. He has a book called The Masters Revealed that I'm reading right meow as research for my book. However, my favorite summation of her lost years comes from a very smart, snarky blog post on philosophyforlife.org. Yes, we can acknowledge the white brotherhood shit. So remember, what year was she born? 1830-something, uh, you said? One. What year did she go to New York? Uh, 1850... 1873. 1873? Mm-hmm. There, there's a fucking pop quiz. You gotta pay attention. I'm just kidding. Um, when was Hitler? Like, when was that an issue? Uh, I don't know. When was the KKK an issue? <laughs> right. Well, no, but when we're talking... <laughs> so, okay, I hear you. That's great. And... However, listen to what I am saying about this and about where she is and the context of that stuff, please. Okay. Thank you. What were you saying? Oh, just that the Emancipation Proclamation was in there, too. So Yeah, so there's a lot of those things. And really, when she uses words like the white brotherhood, she's referring to etheric white light. Jennifer, would you like to say more about those things inside of spirituality when we talk about guides so that people can actually understand it instead of just being shitty about it? <laughs> well, I think it does sound a little weird and... Like, as a the brotherhood part, yeah, right? I think, is kind of the main thing. Because, like, if she just called them her white light guides or something like I know. that, we might not be, I don't know, as up raising arms eyebrows. About it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, in general, like, the idea of any kind of, I don't know, um, etheric help, whether mm-hmm. it's, like, angels or guides or people that have passed or whatever, is that they have something kind of an aura around them that, mm-hmm. that is bright white, yeah. and usually considered white, not or gold or yeah. yeah, sometimes a little. Yeah, I was going to say metallic, too. So, yeah, but not necessarily that their skin is white or that they are Caucasian in nature. Yes. And one of the things about Blavatsky that even this person, like the philosophy for life, like I'm going to read verbatim what she said about this and you can you can hear the snark. But as I was kind of reading it, I mean, at the and she's like, it's actually super unfortunate that her teachings came at a time that they could be exploited in the ways that we hear about the White Brotherhood, that we hear about Nazism, about the Aryan race, etc. Because she was so far away from that. Like, she was like, white people can't do any of this shit. Like, white people do not have access to the DNA that it requires to be a magic practitioner. Like, that was what she found. And so it's kind of sad that we're, like, left with this legacy that has been so bastardized, which, like, I don't know that her legacy is that great to begin with. But we have all this fucking context and stuff that's actually not super relevant to her work because we're like, well, but it has to be. So, like, don't fucking do that to her and just take it for what it is, please. Um, Out of curiosity, does that mean that she thought 
since she went to Constantinople for her lost years or at least started That's where she there. started, yeah. She did a lot of, like, Coptic um, Egyptian work, like okay. Coptic. Um, and that, I think, is really where the overlap of, like, Crowley and Blavatsky comes from is the Coptic Egyptian work. We're, it's really interesting because at this point in spirituality and the way that we approach magic, we never talk about Coptic Egyptians. But in all of this time period, the 1800s, the early 1900s, before that, people point to Coptic Egyptians as, like, the source of really, really great, powerful magic. Like, Egyptomania was, like, a big deal. And people Mm -hmm. were, like, taking these relics, and they were like, what's this? I don't know, but it's magic. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. then then they would make up their own kind of beliefs about it uh, or connect them to things that they're not connected to. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, like, I'm so weird and, like, that's not Egyptian or this is what it means because there's a lot of that that's happened and a lot of bastardization because of, like— Colonization, And, I mean, Coptic Egyptian, Coptic Christians, Coptic Christians are the ones that turned their fucking temples into apartment complexes. So, like, be aware of that and that she's even going to Egypt to find this, like, watered-down Christian version of the magic that she thinks she's trying to find because that's what people had access Mm -hmm. to because those are the books that were recorded. So, like, all of those things, please remember that. And contextually, it is very relevant in here. So... I'm going to read the uh, her lost years. There are hard names in this. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> are you just going to do their initials again? Uh, I think, no. I think we're just doing HPV because I think that's how HPV like to be addressed. In things. Yeah. So Blavatsky, like, and actually when the article that was talking about, like, the new light on her marriage, one of the opening things was just, like, how horrified people were at calling her Blavatsky because she was, like, always known as Madame Blavatsky or HPB. Those were how people referred to her, never just her last name, because she was worthy of more than just a last name. And so it's kind of interesting. Like, HPB, um, in yeah. last podcast, they talk about, like, LRH and other people that are cult leaders that go by their initials mm. as a way of deifying themselves and dehumanizing themselves. So I'm not going to – I probably don't need to do uh, too many things, but it's going to be a little rough. Okay. She claimed to have traveled the world, seeking occult wisdom. She said she studied voodoo in New Orleans, lived with the dervishes in Iran, fraternized with the Druze of Lebanon, conjured with the shaman of Mongolia, and journeyed to Tibet where she was initiated into a secret order of superhuman adepts known as the Masters. So this is the the great white brotherhood, the Masters, the Master, that kind of stuff. This is like every 19th century occultist story. Like the great adventurer studied from uh, where, this where, group. How do and you this group. find that if you don't have the internet, RJ? What do you mean? That's well, no, like I, that's where you I'm, get access I, to. I, it. I'm not saying that this is wrong or incorrect or that she did not do those things. I'm saying that that's probably where these tropes come from. Well, I mean, I think it has to be because if you don't have things like the internet or the library, or if everything is so incredibly controlled and Christianized and colonized, how do you ever find that if you don't go to those places and find those people? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was also like a big anthropology rush mm-hmm. uh, at the time. Yeah. And everybody was like, oh, wow, you can just travel all over the world and uh, learn all these things that we didn't even know. Mm-hmm. 
This is the most lurid part of her worldview and for her followers, the most enticing. She claimed that she had discovered the lost city of Shambhala in the Gobi Desert and there encountered the Great White Brotherhood. They were led by the Lord of the World who descended from the planet of Venus. Nice. <laughs> like, that is what she says did, happened. This did, is how she got her magic. Hell yeah. This is my. This is the best plot to the best Rush album. Yes. Honestly. Um, other masters included Manu, Matreyu, Jesus, the Buddha, Mesmer, and two Indian gentlemen called <laughs> Master... Mesmer was there? Master Moray and Kut Humi. So Kut Humi is her main guide that she talks to. And that is the one, one of the many, many things that she would do to like point to proof of her being magic that was counted in her fraudulence was writing letters from Kut Humi or she would say that she would receive letters written from Kut Humi that would appear in this magical like like uh, cabinet. Uh, one day we will do a biography of Mesmer. She was like a, a, like a real alive person. Mm. Um, but uh, if you recall from oh, man, I think it was uh, I think it might have been the the Crowley episode. Uh, but Mesmer uh, developed like some sort of magic thing where you'd put giant magnets on your chest mm-hmm. uh, and uh, one of the I think it was uh, Order of the Golden Dawn members was doing it and had a heart attack because it destabilized the yeah. electrical current of his heart and oh, he died <laughs> yeah I mean humans are electric basically that's what keeps us alive um, yeah so fucking magnets how do they work <laughs> <laughs> Master Mori and Kuthumi, these two lived in the valley in Tibet in an underground city with subterranean tunnels from which they emerged and occasionally which from which they emerged occasionally to guide humanity and communicate with their favorite adept, Helena Blavatsky. No. Oh. Yeah. And then tracks. Right. <laughs> and then Madame Blavatsky appeared in New York seemingly out of nowhere and declared <laughs> just that like spiritual... Moses from Mount Sinai. You like... have to let me finish this in one saying. But yes, just like she just like showed up and was like, hello, I'm here. And this is the hilarious thing. Okay. And then Madame Blavatsky appeared in New York seemingly out of nowhere and declared that spiritualism was not what people thought. Mediums were actually contacting the psychic shells of dead people, often controlled by mischievous spirits. Spiritualism, Blavatsky said, was a game for amateurs. The serious seeker learned magic. And lucky for the world, Madame Blavatsky had just spent 20 years learning magic from the greatest magicians and spirits to ever live. This spiritual shit's for widow babies. Baby shit. That's baby stuff. We're talking (laughs) real adult magic. The raw shit. The underground subterranean mole people from Venus shit. We're talking Mesmer, and he's back, and he's alive. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything in your research about, like, uh, her attending what they used to call, like, mystery schools? So I believe that that's part of what she found in Tibet. Okay. So in the the question of her going to Tibet, to Tibet during her last years is one of the biggest ones. Because she actually tried to go to Tibet not during her last her last years. Like, after the fact, when she was just traveling around um, with one of her disciples, Henry Alcott Jr., she tried to go to Tibet, and they would not let her go. And they cited her being the, like, daughter of a Russian warlord as the reason for not allowing her to be in there because they thought that she was a spy. So she was unable to go at this time. How was she able to get in then? She shows up fucking like dropsy, like mystical She dressed in like red, bright red, like peasant, like pirate 
shirts all the time. Listen, as long as I can eat my 10 fried eggs a day and, and roll my own, as long as you have tobacco rolling paper enough for me to do 8,000 cigarettes, <laughs> right. we are going to be just fine. I am not a spy. I am simply learning how to connect with the most powerful force that, that I theorize will change the world when I connect to it and become raw power itself. Yes. But not a spy. Um, so I think, I don't know that mystery schools, I don't think she attended one. Um, I think she made her own. Like, there really was this sense of, like, nobody actually knows the truth, and I have to find it. And mm-hmm. I'm going to be the one who does. So, like, mystery schools existed for, like, a long time before her. Right. But really at this time, there was that interesting shift between, like, well, Christianity can't be the only religion. Because it can't, like, what we've been taught in Christianity is not true, as proven by Charles Darwin. So now we start moving from schools of mystery into magic, theosophy, occult, spiritualism, all of that. So she's really at this interesting kind of turning point in history in the way that we approach and talk about secrets and mysteries. And I think that, like, priming of of the world and society was such a big thing that created the space for her to be who she was and publish and do the things that she did. So, um, you might be wondering how we go from Helena Blavatsky, the disobedient and strong-willed daughter of the Russian, uh, uh, wow, ask, across to Chris, across to Chris, words are hard today. A crumpet, a tisket, a tasket. Aristocracy. Russian aristocracy. We got it. To HPB, the founder of Theosophy. In the answer is a very sad, lonely man named Henry Alcott Jr. Oh, gee, I really hope some some mystical dom woman will come along and change my life permanently. And he was immediately taken with her and decided that the world needed to see and experience the Blavatsky effect for themselves. I want to go to Venus. I'm going to tell you all about Henry Alcott, the founding of Theosophy, Blavatsky's second husband, her move to India, her books, and more in next week's episode. Because this episode's super fucking long. We had a million things to talk about. So we're going to, like, deep dive more into it. But this is just Blavatsky until America, until she came here. So kind of interesting, kind of wild. What do you guys think about the beginning of her stories? I mean, like, it's definitely a fascinating story. Um, definitely. I'm, I'm still very skeptical, uh, especially knowing all of the fraud shit. Um, but I can definitely see why some of these ideas would be uh, very attractive to both good people and bad people. Attractive and even, like, kind of empowering in a mm-hmm. way. I mean, we're still pretty young breaking away from, like, the Catholic Church at that point. Even, right. Even in Christianity's kind yeah. of, you know, branching off with Martin Luther and all the fun stuff there. Like, you still so I love I love the idea that you can just go find it for yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, even if you don't have to be I don't know, the biggest baddest metaphysical bitch in town, right. you can still just go find it for yourself and just the determination there is pretty awesome. Well, and I think that was one thing that 
that that is why we still have theosophy in the ways that we do. And most people who are theosophists, practicing theosophists right now, um, are people with PhDs, people who are professors, that kind of stuff. And people who talk about um, – I was watching this one thing on theosophy. Um, it was on YouTube, and it was a guy who was giving a talk about theosophy and specifically Madame Blavatsky and kind of her approach to things. And he got up there. He was probably in his 70s. Like, he was definitely an elderly man. This uh-uh, is uh-uh. – Uh -uh. (laughs) Let me finish what I am trying to say, please. So um, he gets up there and he goes, "I'm, I'm, I'm a very new student of theosophy. I've only been studying for about 12 years. There are people in this room that have been in it for 40 years or more. And so people talk about it. In, in terms of like, and there are people who are incredibly intelligent. And there's this idea of like, Blavatsky is almost revered by theosophists. And some of them believe that there's no way that she could have done anything wrong. And then we have K. Paul Johnson, who's like, her lost years are not fucking lost. And the masters are not fucking real. They are people that she knows, that she mythologized in order to become what she is. Because it's easier to say, the gods that you cannot see have given me this information than I have created this information out of my own lived experiences and those of the intelligent people around me. If you're trying to deify yourself and trying to convince people to follow you, what's going to be stronger. I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> so yeah, that's the episode. Awesome. I have a little sign off. Um, yeah, we're all going to do our thing. I'm going to read. This. Oh, I thought. Like, Hold on. We're all going to do a little cheer. Is what I thought you were going to say, and I got kind of what, excited. What cheer? What do we do? One, two, three. Mancy. No. <laughs> Um, I just, well, I just wrote this thing out because I wanted to, like, actually thank our patrons, listen, listeners, clients, everyone, because I don't know why RJ doesn't write those into the thing. But thank you guys for, like, thinking that this is worth having in the world. Thank you guys for giving us money. Thank you guys for supporting us. Thank you for getting readings. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Jennifer, for showing up, for, like, being someone who can actually talk about this stuff with me (laughs) so that we can have a real conversation about it. I really appreciate that. Um, if you guys wanted to... RJ can go fuck himself. I specifically said I'm going to need someone who can actually talk about the theory of this and I want to remind you that you made jokes through the theory of it so yes that is why Jennifer is here (laughs) that is the thing but this is actually serious this is actually my life's work this is actually the thing I'm committed to and I would like it to be taken seriously because it is for me and a lot of people in the world who pay for it so there's that um, if you guys wanted to support us monetarily, you can do a Venmo donation to at Dollar Compliments or at Laurels of Lux, and RJ will make a fake reading for you. He'll yeah. do a fake tarot reading for you if you donate any amount starting at a dollar. Um, if you guys wanted to become a patron, you guys get bonus episodes, outtakes, ability to listen to the episode as soon as it's like published, as soon as we put it online, so you don't have to wait for Wednesday. Um, and you can actually follow us on there with no cost, no money, and you can just kind of like follow us to see what we put you can lurk yep okay do you guys want to do your sign up jennifer you gotta plug all your shit tell people where they can give you money how they can find you for a reading (laughs) (laughs) where people can give me money huh? yeah sounds good um let's see my website is readings and more by jennifer.com you can find me on facebook instagram twitter tiktok all Anywhere. of those places, yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and I'm I'm happy to do readings. I work with people worldwide, so uh, if you're interested, you can always check out my uh, website, and it'll get you right to my little booking site. Yeah, 
And if you thought my jokes did help make the show just a little more entertaining, um, my books are at rjwalkerpoet.com. You can find me on Etsy at Laurels of Lux. Um, get readings from us, and we'll talk more about this. Or really and truly, you know, the thing that both Jennifer and I do is, like, consultations and discussions. So if you guys want to book some time and, like, pick our brains about these things, if you have specific questions as they relate to, like, something in this episode reminded you of a thing that you need to talk about, both Jennifer and I are available for those consulta- consultations. They cost the same amount as a reading, so you would just book a regular reading, and in the notes you could just leave, I want to talk about all this cool shit and we'll like help with that but thank you guys so much for listening to us um rj's gonna do the credits for our music because i don't know them the music was provided by hayden fulker me and scott buckley